Praise the Lord for the truth we've already sung this morning and heard read as well. Now I hope that you will join me as we take a moment to pray together as a church. In this time of prayer, we structure our prayers not just for physical needs within the body, but also about the greater gospel work that God is doing around the world. And so oftentimes you'll hear us pray for other churches. We're not competing with other churches. We're very thankful and very excited that God has placed God, uh, God-fearing, gospel-preaching churches in this city and around the world. And uh, we rejoice in the goodness of God and his favor on them as they proclaim the gospel and see people won to Christ. And uh, so as we pray, I hope that you will also give a hearty amen when I conclude, not just that you're happy that it's over, okay, but that you agree Um, If you agree, then you will say amen with me. Um, So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you today with joy and gratitude. Joy because as we just sang, your mercies are more than our sin. That we know you through Jesus, your son, that we have been adopted by you and loved by you. We are your children. You are our father. We're also grateful this morning that you give rest to the weary, comfort to those who mourn, that you give us truth that triumphs over our feelings, and strength to the weak, mercy to those who fail, and forgiveness to those who confess their sin. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture, and we gather today not just for ourselves, but for you. We rejoice over the truth and teaching of your word. We rejoice to see and remember that our God reigns. And as we gather today, we are also mindful that in your mercy, you help us grow in godliness. You encourage us to continue in the faith. As we look around this room and we see other brothers and sisters, we are reminded that we are not alone in this struggle against our flesh, against the sin and the difficulties of this world. And so, Father, we ask for the peace that passes all understanding. Guard our hearts and minds. Help us to live as Christ Jesus did. Let Let our faith in you fill our hearts so that your will is our will. Help us to be thankful, regardless of whether we have little or much. And we are mindful that you instruct us to not worry about anything. Instead, to pray about everything. So, Father, we confess this morning that we don't always do this. Forgive us for our lack of obedience and faith. We humbly ask that you provide what we need when we need it. And give us peace and faith so that as we wait upon you, that we will persevere in confidence in your goodness and your promises. Father, we know that you hear our request because you've invited us to come boldly before your throne of grace through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we are encouraged To know that our creator is working all things together for 
his glory and our good. And so this morning we lift up our brothers and sisters at Creators Fellowship here in Manderson, South Dakota. We praise you, Lord, that this church is growing in maturity. We pray that you would strengthen our brother, Jeremy, as he preaches there today. Father, we also thank you for the evangelistic efforts that are taking place both personally within this church in one-to-one Bible readings, in conversations at the park or the store, at work, and also those efforts that are taking place corporately. And so we ask even now, Lord, in preparation for VBS next month, that your gospel would bear much fruit, that you would help the members of this church to frankly and fairly and freely share the gospel with conviction and humility. Today, Lord, we are thankful for our mothers and the life they gave us. And we also understand that as a result of the fall that none of us had perfect parents. But we are reminded yet of your mercy, Lord, that in Christ we are placed in the family of God and we have spiritual mothers who teach and model for us what it means to know and love Jesus. And we thank you for them. We thank you that they pray for us. And so, Lord, we ask simply this morning that today would be a day of rejoicing and gratitude as we see the word that has become flesh and dwelt among us. And we behold his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Build your church and help us to obey you in the ways that you call and speak to us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, If you have a Bible, you'll want to turn to Exodus 33. And we are going through... One of my favorite passages, truthfully, in all of the Bible. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we would invite you to look under the seat in front of you. And there are some blue pew Bibles there for you. And you can find the passage that we're going to be going through on page 74. Uh, I appreciate Pastor James letting me preach, uh, taking a pause on his uh, series in 1 Thessalonians. We hope you'll come back next week for that as well. But uh, since I got to choose what passage I wanted, I figured I'd choose uh, perhaps maybe my favorite passage uh, in all of the Bible. So I'll tell you why, to give a little backstory, why I wanted to preach this passage and uh, why we're going through it this morning. A long time ago, when I was a kid, when Third Day was the best Christian band you could listen to outside of Audio Adrenaline, and friends, if you don't know who those bands are, don't even worry about it, a few of my friends, because this is what cool kids that were in fourth or fifth grade did, a few of my friends and our moms went to go see Third Day live after a basketball tournament that I had played all day. And I can remember, I'm pretty sure in the last game that we played in that basketball tournament, I just played terribly because all I wanted to do, I wanted to get to this Third Day concert. And also, on top of that, guess who else was going to be there? Michael W. Smith. I mean, he was there in all of his radiance with his blonde frosted hair. I mean, it was just such an exciting thing for me as a fourth and fifth grader. And I may or may not have had uh, blonde frosted hair at one point, too. 
There was also this other guy that was going to speak in the middle of the concert named Max Licato. I didn't know who he was, or, and I didn't really care who he was. Uh, I was there for the music. I was there for third day. But wouldn't you know it, the thing I remember most about this concert was not how amazing Michael W. Smith was on piano or how awesome third day was live, but it was that guy I didn't really care about, and the guy I didn't know who it was named Max Licato. And I remember his short little devotional in the middle of the concert. I can remember him making the story that Moses retells for us in Exodus 33 that we're going to be going through this morning just come into 3D for me. And my hope this morning is that if this is the very first time that you've ever read this passage, or perhaps the thousandth, my hope this morning is that you will fall in love with the Lord. I hope and pray that you will fall in love with who he is and what he's done for us to make access to him for his people. So for the middle excuse me, for the sake of time, I've dropped us just right in the middle of Exodus. And ultimately, I've dropped us in the middle of Exodus 33 as well. And much like the rest of the history of the people of Israel, uh, the events preceding uh, this passage are a little rocky, to say uh, the least. So I think it'll be helpful just for me to run through really quickly what has gone on so far in the history of God's people. God has promised that through this one man named Abraham, the Lord would bless him and that he would make Abraham and his offspring into a great nation. And this nation ultimately would bless the peoples of the earth. Then at the end of Genesis, if you can remember with me, remember that Abraham's descendants, Jacob and his sons, Jacob is also known as Israel, and his sons ended up settling in Egypt because there was a great famine within the land. And the good news is for Jacob and his sons, because of Joseph and God's inner working throughout the end of Genesis, the relationship with Israel and his sons and those people are really, really great with the Egyptian Pharaoh. Well, we get to the beginning of Exodus and God's people are thriving. They're growing in number. And the generations after this famine are are numerous in the millions. But there's a new Pharaoh in town. And... He doesn't really like these Hebrew people. He actually aims to wipe them off the face of the planet. His hope is to completely and utterly destroy them. So much so that he goes at lengths to kill the firstborn children of these Hebrew people, the sons, so that they couldn't reproduce again. But God did not forget his promise to Abraham and to Jacob. He did not forget his promise to his people. And he saved a little Hebrew boy named Moses, who ended up, ironically, being raised in Pharaoh's household. Moses grows into a man, and because of a series of events, Moses kills an Egyptian, and he flees to Midian. Then God calls Moses from Midian to be the leader, to be the shepherd of the people of Israel, and asks Moses to lead them out of bondage of Egypt. And guess what? God ends up doing that. He makes good on this promise. He delivers his people through an exodus, through a series of plagues, through the Passover, through the splitting of the Red Sea. And then he takes these two million people into the wilderness, and they are headed toward this promised land that he made to Abraham and to Jacob and to the rest of the Israelite people. And not too much longer after the people have been delivered and start heading toward the land, the people guess what? They begin to complain. They begin to sin and harden their hearts against God again. They complain about not having water or not having food. 
And the Lord in his kindness, instead of just wiping them off the face of the earth, the Lord in his kindness, through the intercession of Moses, gives the people exactly what they need. And as the Lord gives them what they need, he gives them a really beautiful thing. He gives them his law. He gives them what we know as the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. And he gives them this law or this Ten Commandments because he wants them to relate to him well. And then on top of that, he wants them to be able to relate to one another well. And they are given this law so that they would be a set-apart people to all the nations that they are getting ready to go into. So God gives them this law so that they would reflect not how great and awesome they are, but who God is at the end. And then the Lord also gave them instructions for this thing called the tabernacle, this place of worship for God's people. And he gave instructions for priests so that they could make atoning sacrifices on behalf of the people because of their sin. He gives them this great law, and it's so beautiful and so awesome because this is the way that God is going to relate to his people. And guess what? When you know it, not even moments after they've been given this law and all these instructions, they build a golden calf. They build a golden calf in their idolatry because they thought this was the best way for them to worship Yahweh. And the Lord is so unbelievably enraged and angry at this that he is ready to just wipe them out. He wants his wrath to be poured out among the people. But again, what we find is Moses interceding for his people, reminding God of his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, reminding them of, Lord, you are going to make them into a great nation. He intercedes for them, and God relents from his wrath. But as a consequence for this idolatry, Moses ends up with the sons of Levi killing 3,000 men because of this event. It's a very somber note as we get into our passage. And the Lord is ready to move on. He's ready for his people to move on. And as he's ready for them to move on, he tells them to get up and go from the mountain where they received the law and go into the promised land. Because if they don't, he might pour his wrath out upon them again. And again, we see Moses interceding on behalf of his people, pleading with the Lord that he might be with them. He wants God to be with his people as they go into this land. And he especially wants God to be with himself to be with Moses. And you can read along with me in verses 16 and 17. This is what Moses states to God right before our verses this morning. Moses says to God, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So the Lord, in his kindness, grants Moses his request. He's going to go with him into the promised land. And this is where we find ourselves in verse 18 of chapter 33. Let's read along in God's word. Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. 
Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Let's go once again to the Lord in prayer. God, our request this morning is the same as Moses. Please show us your glory. Show it through your word. And God, we pray that we might behold the greatest, glorious thing in all of Scripture. We pray that we would behold Jesus this morning. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So I don't know if you notice this. Moses is doing something kind of interesting here, right? If you read in verse 17 there, and the Lord says to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And then in our verses this morning, God declares himself. He shows Moses his name. So not only does Moses, excuse me, God know Moses by name, but now God wants Moses to know him by his name. And that's really what the main idea of our passage this morning is. The Lord, Yahweh, is full of glory, goodness, and grace and mercy. Again, the Lord Yahweh is full of glory, goodness, grace, and mercy. But we cannot have access to him unless we are hidden in the rock. We cannot have access to him unless we are hidden in the rock. For you note-takers, this is the main idea altogether one more time. The Lord Yahweh, which is his name, is full of glory, goodness, and grace and mercy. But we cannot have access to him unless we are hidden in the rock. What we're going to do is we're going to walk through this passage in two main points. And the first point this morning is know the Lord, and then later we'll get into hide in the rock. So the first point this morning, know the Lord. Know the Lord. As we look at the first four verses of our passage this morning, we can see three major things that we ought to know about the Lord as he makes his name known to Moses. And I think the first thing that we see is that the Lord is full of glory. The Lord is full of glory. Throughout the book of Exodus, and and really throughout Genesis as well, as Moses is writing and recording these events of God, this is what he's trying to ultimately get across to the reader. That the Lord is full of glory. The Lord, the maker, the creator, the sustainer of the universe is full of glory. And this glory that Moses asked the Lord to see is so, so unbelievably unique only to God. We sang about it this morning in that song, Holy, Holy, Holy. And this glory that Moses asked the Lord that he can see is this Hebrew word, is this word kavod. And and kavod can be translated as honor or majesty and often can be translated as, as heaviness heaviness or weightiness. The Lord in his glorious character would have been a heavy or weighty thing to behold for Moses. So this request, I believe, is not something that Moses is just flippantly laying out. He's not just coming up to the Lord. I mean, he knows the character of the Lord up to this point. And he's not just saying, hey, I really want to behold this heavy and weighty thing from you. I want to see you completely. I actually think this is him saying, I want to know you fully. I want to behold you completely. I want to see all of you. And this request would be so that Moses would see Yahweh manifested and that he would know him fully, intentionally, deep inside of himself. And ultimately, so that he could appropriately approach the Lord and so that he could lead God's covenant people. He's not just asking this because it's going to be something that he can tell his grandkids. He's telling, he's requesting this thing so that he can behold them in such a way that he can lead his people and to lead his people in a way that would honor the Lord. 
So in light of God promising to go with the people of Israel into the land, Moses wants the Lord to signify this promise by revealing himself completely and utterly to Moses. Lord, if it's true that you are to be with us as we go into the land, and so that people will know that you are our God, I want to see you fully. But we must remember, the Lord has never been seen like this. Not since Genesis 3. What Adam and Eve once enjoyed in the Lord's unhindered presence in the garden, it's now been taken away because of the sin of humanity. And generation after generation has passed since Adam and Eve. And not a single person has ever beheld the weightiness and the glory of God. What Moses is wanting is totally unique within the time span of history since Genesis 3. And yet, Moses, the leader of the sinful people who just created a golden calf out of idolatry, desires to behold God in a way that has only been merely or vaguely seen throughout creation and throughout these redemptive acts in Exodus. There's nothing and no one in all of the earth as glorious, as heavy as the Lord, as Yahweh. And it is this one distinct feature that Moses wishes to behold. Just to illustrate and to give you a picture, I think, of what the weight of what Moses is asking here. It'd be like walking up uh, to the water of the Niagara Falls and asking for a single cup of water with your little eight-ounce styrofoam cup. I'm not really sure you can actually get to the bottom of Niagara Falls because it's so dangerous because of all the weight of water that's falling down at the falls. But if you went to the bottom of those falls and and had your little eight-ounce styrofoam cup walked up to it and it started just like filling it up, it not only would fill it up, but it would probably break the cup and end up crushing you just because it was so heavy and so weighty. It would probably drown you. And even Niagara Falls, with all of its beauty and all of its majesty and all of its weightiness, is just a mere shadow, I believe, of what God is in his glorious character. The Lord is heavy. He is glorious. And as we'll see later on, this heaviness, this weightiness, is why the Lord responds the way that he does to Moses. This glory is unique to God. The glory of the Lord would have been so utterly overwhelming to Moses, and and the Lord knows that this is a request of significance, and it must be dealt with appropriately. He cannot just let Moses behold him simply. The second thing we see as the Lord declares his name to Moses is that the Lord is full of goodness. As he goes on in part to describe his glory, the Lord says of himself in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh. As we find here in this verse, the Lord shows us through his glorious character that he is full of goodness. When he says that he will proclaim before him, before Moses, his name, the Lord, Yahweh, God is saying here that the I am who I am is completely and utterly good. In every part of him and in every aspect of who he is, Yahweh, the Lord, is good. I think this is hard, truthfully, for us to comprehend. I think it's hard for us to comprehend for a couple of reasons. I think first because God in his character and in his person is truthfully indescribable. Probably at some level, me saying that God is good is falling short of what he's actually like. But I also believe as well, while we can do our best with human language and concepts to conceive of who the Lord is, I think we also have a hard time understanding how good the Lord is 
because we attribute human qualities to the Lord, and we know that those will fail him. There's a part of us that probably wonders if there's actually really anything in all of creation, in all of the universe that is actually that good, that's really good in its nature and in its character. And as we all probably well know, whether by history or experience, or even from the story that was just preceding this one, we humans are unbelievably sinful. If the Lord is fully good, we are really not good. There is no good, no righteousness, none at all is what the psalmist would say. God's word, God's word tells us that we are sinful, we are evil from birth, and there is nothing in our nature that is good. We are totally not good compared to God the Father. The sin of our father Adam has transferred down to us and has completely corrupted us. And what God is like in his nature and in his person is not what we are like in our nature and in our person. As the Lord describes himself, he is completely the opposite of us. He's totally and completely good. He is perfectly good in his morality and he is perfectly good in his nature. Even the decision prior to Exodus 33 here where he had the 3,000 men killed at that point in time. God in his actions and in his justice was completely good in that. And I know this is hard for us to comprehend. I know it has been for me as well. Trying to understand something that perfect. But I think the Apostle John actually helps us understand this goodness that God is like in 1 John 5. The Apostle writes, This is the message we have heard from him. And proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. No darkness at all. God is completely good. He is completely light. John goes on to say if we have fellowship with him, with this totally good and this God that is light, if we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we actually lie and do not practice the truth. We actually aren't representing who he actually is. Friends, while many in the world will claim that the Lord in the Old Testament is somehow sadistic and and morally evil because of how he acts in the Old Testament, we need to remember and we need to hold in tension that we are unbelievably not good. We are unbelievably sinful. I would say almost embarrassingly so. If God's character is totally good and has no sort of impurity, then any sort of evil or sin against him demands a totally good and just response. And what we discover then, as we look at God's response, is that ultimately we are the issue, not God. And I think it's in this vein that Moses' question to see the glory of God is all the more bold. Do you see that? As, As God is totally glorious and totally and completely good, This question from a sinful man like Moses to behold this glory and to behold this goodness is all the more bold. What makes Moses a murderer and a sinner just like you and me think he can ask a question to behold the completeness, the heaviness, and the glory and the goodness of God? Well, I think that brings us to the other aspect of the Lord that we see in the second half of verse 19 as he declares his name to Moses that the Lord is full of grace and mercy. The Lord is full of grace and mercy. The second half of verse 19 reads as this, And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I'm not trying to assume the mind of God or anything, but 
I think that the Lord says this to comfort Moses somewhat. After saying, I'm going to make all of my glory, all of my goodness pass before you, and Moses probably in the middle of that reply is like, oh my goodness, what have I just asked? Was this a stupid question? Should I have done this? I don't know. What am I doing? The Lord says to him and probably reassures him, I'm gracious and I'm merciful. And I think what's really fascinating is he says that I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So the Lord in all of his gloriousness has the divine prerogative to show and to behold himself to whoever he decides that he wants to have mercy and graciousness upon. I'm convinced the more that I read the Bible, the Lord wants not only to be known for being gracious and merciful, not just known simply like that, but I believe that he loves to be gracious and merciful. It's who he is. And I think this is especially true in his disposition to his children. These aspects of the Lord, his grace and mercy, I believe are in lockstep with his glorious character and his goodness. And they shine who he is just as brightly as the fact that he's not evil and holy, holy, holy. I wonder if you're here today and you find yourself perhaps thinking that maybe the Lord, God the Father, is somehow just always displeased with you. Brother and sister, do you think of God the Father in such a way that he only deals with you because of Christ and that Christ kind of took everything for you so that you could just have this neat relationship with him? Do you believe that he's displeased with you and not really full of graciousness and mercy? Friend, I think a text like this absolutely derails that thought and screams against it. It is the very character of God. It is who he is that wants to and desires to show you mercy and grace. Friend, think about this. If you have been brought into salvation by God's mighty hand, it is because it is in his character that he desired and wanted you to know that. Even in the deepest of your sin, he desires to show you mercy and grace. All he asks of you is for you to come in faith and trust that he will give you grace if you come to him in faith. And I promise you, he will. Paul talks about this later, right? All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And one of the ways that we can call upon the name of the Lord is to know that he is full of grace and mercy. And he has a prerogative on who he can show that to. To my unbelieving friend here, as I'm describing this God, I I wonder what holds you back from trusting God? I wonder if perhaps your hesitation to come to God actually comes from an inaccurate representation of God. Some of you may have come in here with a limited understanding of the knowledge of God. And guess what? I'm so thankful that you're here. That's one of the things that we aim to do here week after week is try to behold God and to look at him in his word and to know who he is more and more. But I can also tell you that much of modern thought and those against Christianity, they want to paint God the Father as some sort of incredibly angry God that, you know, just with a snap of a finger like Thanos in the Marvel series, just wants to wipe you out. Friend, I pray that you would see how the Lord reveals himself here in this text, but also in the whole arc of Scripture, to see that he is gracious and that he is merciful, and that he is gracious and merciful for any who would come to him. I actually believe that we, act, we see this 
just right after this account, we read this morning in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, God renews his covenant promises to Israel. And he tells Moses to bring these two new tablets for the Ten Commandments to be rewritten on. And as he's about to rewrite and to renew this covenant with his people, he, he says in Exodus 34, 5, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, being Moses, and proclaimed his name, the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And look at how Moses responds. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. My friend, if you have not trusted in this God, this is what he invites you to this morning. A real and genuine worship, a real and genuine relationship with himself because he is full of glory, because he is full of goodness, and because he is full of grace and mercy. He invites you into real relationship because he has revealed himself to you in his true and real and genuine character. If this is the God, the God of the Bible, the one that you would want to trust in this morning, please come and talk to me after the service. I'll be out at the doors. Perhaps you can come and talk and look at the back of your bulletin, find one of those faces and talk to them or talk to that friend who brought you here. But this is the kind of God that wants to know you. One who is full of glory, full of goodness, and full of grace and mercy. If that's you and you want to know him, I pray that you would trust in him this morning. And friends, I pray for those of us that are members of South Canyon Baptist Church that we would come to know and to desire to know the Lord in all of his glorious character more deeply. And I pray that especially we would know him in his grace and mercy. But even as we seek the grace and mercy that is found in the Lord, we still have an issue, don't we? Read with me in verse 20. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. While there's much grace and mercy that can be found in the Lord, there's still a lot of sin within us a lot of not good within us, and we need help. Which brings us to the second point of this passage, the second point of the sermon, hide in the rock. Hide in the rock. Read with me in verses 21 through 23. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord in his character and in his glory cannot allow for any sin, none at all, to be in his presence. And therefore, Moses and we ourselves cannot be fully in his presence. As we've discussed earlier, we would be totally consumed and unable to exist within that presence. So what does God do for Moses at this request? What does he do for us? He hides Moses and he hides us in the rock. The Lord shows his glorious, good, gracious, and merciful character. Not by simply saying to Moses, hey Moses, that was a really sweet request. And I can see in your heart that you really want this, my friend. 
and that you genuinely want to behold who I am. But you're really not good. You've murdered somebody. You're a sinner. So, sorry, buddy, can't happen. That's not how he deals with Moses, and that's not how he deals with us. God says, no, yes, you can't behold me, but yes, while you can't see my face, I will make a way. I will make a way that you can see my glory. I will place you in the cleft of the rock. I will have my hand cover you so that you may not perish at the sight of me. I will, I will, I will. The Lord Yahweh takes care of everything so that we might be able to know him and to behold him. I think there's two things from this section of verses that I really want us to look at and see. The first thing I want us to see is that the Lord makes a way. Friends, there's nothing, literally nothing, that Moses could do to see God's glory. Outside of just simply asking and requesting to see the glorious, to see the glorious character of God, Moses couldn't configure, he couldn't pray, he couldn't fast, he couldn't damage or destroy his body enough to fully behold God. He couldn't do anything. But when it seemed like all is hopeless for Moses in this request, the Lord grants it to him. Not by having Moses do a bunch of tasks or menial things or cutting away at his body and and doing something so that he could earn his way to see God's glory. No, the Lord himself makes a way for Moses. Brothers and sisters, I wonder how many of us still act like and have an instinct of something that we need to do or something we need to practice to have a relationship with God. I wonder if there are any here that maybe like me are tired from the exhaustion and the feeling of feeling like there's more that you could be doing to have a better and right relationship with God. I think, friend, what this text shows you and me is that the Lord will definitively take care of every single aspect of what it needs to be in a right standing and in a right relationship with him. Friend, he simply invites us to rest in what he has done. And whenever we get to eternity, what he will do. I mean, look at this. Moses didn't even need to walk over or climb up to hide in the cleft of the rock. Do you see that in our passage? Look with me in 21. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. God carries Moses to that rock. Moses didn't even need to walk or climb up. The Lord's hand placed him there. And just as sure as Moses was once he was in that hiding place, friend, we too can be sure as we hide in Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer, that we can rest in knowing that everything we need is taken care of. The work is done. Jesus declared it himself on the cross. It is finished. God will definitively take care of everything you need to be able to behold him fully. And he's done so through Jesus Christ. I think the second thing that we see in the section of verses that I don't want us to miss is that the Lord would not reject any who would genuinely come to him. The Lord would not reject any who would genuinely come to him. I realize that throughout the first five books of the Bible, it's very obvious that Moses had a very particular and and very special relationship with the Lord. I mean, really, outside of anybody else in the Bible, there is nobody that's really like Moses in terms of his proximity with the Lord and his relationship with the Lord. And maybe outside of David and Elijah, there's no one else that we can kind of compare to in the Bible with the relationship that 
the Lord and Moses have. Obviously, Jesus had a great relationship with the Father, but that's because he was also God. And yet, Moses was not any different than his brother Aaron, who helped build and erect the golden calf. He's not any different than David, who was, yes, a man after God's own heart, but murdered another man so that he could sleep with a woman. I mean, Moses isn't all that different from you and me. He isn't different because he also lived with the thorn of sin in his side. And yet, even as sinful and as imperfect as Moses was, Moses still looked in faith to the Lord. He asked his bold request in verse 18 because I believe as he sought to know the Lord and strive for a right relationship with him, I think he believed that the Lord would not reject him if he came to him with genuine contrition of heart. I mean, think about it here for a moment. Moses was the one, as I have disclosed earlier, who repeatedly interceded for the people of God. They messed up. Moses prays on behalf of his people, calling back to mind the promises of God to God. God answers. And each time he did, as you can look back in Exodus 1-33, through each time that Moses interceded for his people, guess what happened? Moses always based that intercession upon the character of God upon the promise that he was good and that he was just and that he was full of grace and mercy. Moses could make this request to God because time and time again, the Lord had shown that if there was genuine contriteness of heart and faith in the Lord of who he really was, the one that would keep his promises, he would not reject him. The Lord was not in the business of rejecting a man like Moses who came to him with a true heart that was ready to turn away from sin and willing to place his whole trust and his whole faith in who placed him in the hand of the rock. Friend, the same is true for you today. He would not reject you if you come to him with genuine faith and genuine repentance, a genuine disgust for your sin. But how do we know this to be true for us? How do we know that if we call upon his name and if we come to him in faith, how do we know that he's not going to reject us? Well, simply, and in good old-fashioned Sunday school answer, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the reason that we know that God will not reject us. Turn with me very quickly to Mark 6.45, and I think you're going to see what I'm talking about here. Mark 6.45. It's the second gospel account. And I'll just go ahead and tell you, there's a lot of things that we can glean from this passage, but there's kind of one main thing I want us to see. But Mark 6.45 says, Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side of Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. That's important, right? Because what was God going to do for Moses? He's going to pass him by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. 
Isn't it interesting that Mark mentions that Jesus intended to pass them by? I think what's going on here is Mark, because he is likely a Jewish writer, is wanting to create this illusion of actually what we're seeing here in our text this morning. I mean, I could also get into, really, with the Greek etymology of that phrase, it is I, in Mark 6, and how perhaps as the Lord is declaring himself, take heart, it is I, that he is actually saying, I am who I am, just like God was saying that his name was the Lord Yahweh, I am who I am. I could get into that, but I think what Mark is wanting to do is to help us understand Exodus 33, 18 through 23 better. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, he comments on these verses by connecting our text this morning by saying, The Lord passed by Moses and revealed that his deepest glory is seen in his grace and mercy. Jesus came to do in flesh and blood what God had only done in wind and voice in the Old Testament. Simply put, brothers and sisters, we can know with assurance that God would not reject any who would come to him because God has come to us. God has come to us. And he's come to us in the person of Jesus. If you come to faith in God because of who he has shown himself to be, just like Moses, he will not reject you. Friend, he will hide you in the rock. This is exactly what God does for us in Jesus. The hymn, Rock of Ages, it places it this way, and I'm so glad that we're going to sing this here in a little bit. It says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. We have something better than an actual geological piece of earth. We have flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. We know that God will not reject us because God himself has come to us. We can hide in our rock. We can hide in Jesus. So for my brothers and sisters here at South Canyon, I bet that maybe for more than a few of us, there's a lie often dormant in our minds that likes to spring up every once in a while, that maybe God is not who he says he is. And maybe he has not taken care of everything that we need to have salvation in him. Maybe as he was declaring himself in Exodus 34, sometimes we believe maybe he really isn't slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I think some of us at times believe that. Oh, but friend, I pray that a passage like this would put that notion, that lie to rest. I pray that not only would you hide yourself in the rock, but that you would look at Jesus, that you would look at the rock, at the author and perfecter of our faith. Because just as there was a rock for Moses to hide in, There is a cross, and better yet, an empty grave that tells us a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Or as our Savior Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You come to God needy, you come to God poor in spirit, and you hide yourself in that rock because he will not reject you. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for your glory. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace and mercy. And we thank you, Lord, that in that character, you have made for us a hiding place. And more than that, Lord, you have made for us a way to call upon your name so that we would not be rejected. 
So, Father, I pray that in your kindness and your goodness, that if somebody here does not know that goodness or that mercy, that they would behold it this morning. And God, for those of us that do know that you would behold us from one to glory, from one degree of glory to another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.